Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. And welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to answer your questions about critical theory and domestic abuse. But before we jump into that question today, I wanted to take a moment to remind you of PeaceWorks Live. PeaceWorks Live is our upcoming uh, conference in September, and that's going to feature myself, Greg Wilson, and Ben Marshall as we're going to be talking through a pastoral and leadership response to domestic abuse. I know you're going to want to be part of that. Uh, you can attend that through live stream, or we highly recommend you make the journey to Charleston, West Virginia, to Bible Center Church on September 7th and 8th to join us in person. Uh, we would love to see you in person at PeaceWorks Live. You can learn more about PeaceWorks Live at chrismoles.org. All right, so on today's episode, we have a question uh, that is somewhat sparked by some of our recent discussions. I think sometimes we we have this uh, practice of adventures and missing the point or maybe speaking past each other or around each other um, rather than, than talking to each other or with each other. And I think this is one of those topics um, that I'm going to try to be, I'm going to try to be gracious with, even though I think sometimes it becomes um, a weaponized, a weaponized conversation rather than a healthy one. And the question goes like this. Do you, do you deny that most modern responses to domestic abuse are built upon the foundation of critical theory. Do you deny that most modern responses to domestic abuse are built upon the foundation of critical theory? And I guess my answer to that would be maybe. Um, and I know that's not a acceptable one, so I will unpack it. I I do not holistically think that's the case. Like I I don't think that most law enforcement responses are based in historic critical theory or um, um, some of those um, philosophical arguments. Um, I don't think most court responses are uh, simply because I, I don't think they're consistent with each other. Uh, do I think philosophically that um, many folks within the domestic abuse work, many folks who are trained or perhaps those who are doing the training have held or have to read aspects of critical theory? Yes. I do think that that is present in most modern-day domestic abuse discussions. The, the, the distinction for me is just because it's discussed doesn't necessarily mean that I think it's applied. Um, and, I, and I'll try to unpack that just a little bit um, for, for those who are listening. Let me back up where I think the question is coming from. So the question, again, do you deny that most modern responses to domestic abuse are built upon the foundation of critical theory? Um, the, what the... What is being alluded to is in the mid-80s, um, DAIP to some degree emerge and amends, and others who were building responses to batterers, like stepping into the work of, of working with men, for instance, uh, were building upon a foundation or adopting a philosophy by... Um, Paula Fiera, a uh, Brazilian educator, 
that was Fierre is kind of the grandfather of modern critical theory. And so critical theory right now um, is a real hot topic in, in some conservative church circles. And I think there's a fear related to some of the problems in some applications of critical theory, such as all power is oppressive. I think that's one of the things that drives a, a few people nutty is this idea that some folks would say that all power is oppressive and therefore all power must be shared or all authority must be shared. And there seems to be a real practical uh, loss there. It's like, how do you apply that um, in practically? How do you put skin on that? And I, and I think that's why I say to the initial question, maybe because I, I practically I haven't really seen that be the primary application but I would not disagree that philosophically, uh, most folks, the majority of which were unbelievers, um, this was not a Christian movement uh, per se, adopted uh, pedagogy of the oppressed or some form of collective educational response as their primary philosophy. So I, I would not deny that. And I think that's very widely seen in the literature uh, as far as that being the philosophical foundations or the philosophical makeup of many responses uh, to domestic abuse that are, I wouldn't even say clinical because the majority of this work wasn't done in the counseling world. Most of that work is done in more of the psychoeducational um, batterer reform, if you even call it that, intervention world that ironically, and this is where I think practically it has it's hard to answer this question because the, the irony in my mind or the dilemma in my mind is the vast majority of agencies that adopted the response, what we call now the community-coordinated response, were criminal and civil agencies. So, so here's, here's the rub, and I get it. Like I really do understand the rub. So the questioner, do you deny... Um, that critical theory was at the foundations. I, I can't deny that. I think that's if you read, you know, creating a process of change, for instance, or you interacted with some of the early work with uh, Ellen Pence or Michael Paymar, you have to acknowledge that Paula Fiera, the, the uh, and I, I keep saying the title of the book, I think it was Pedagogy of the Oppressed, um, was, was really a, a heartbeat in one of their, and one of their motivators. They really appreciated that approach. To me, the, again, the irony or the dilemma of that is the vast majority of systems of agencies that use that particular material are law enforcement, corrections, and civil agencies. And so it's, it's I don't know if comical is the right word, but it is chuckle-worthy to say, here's a corrections department that is engaged in batterer intervention, for instance. And they're teaching principles of respect versus violence, of um, care versus harm, uh, and being accused of promoting uh, critical theory or that all power is oppressive when they themselves, the vast majority of them have badges or they sit on the judge's bench, right? So there is practically um, a rejection of that idea that all power is oppressive. Even if, and, and you could even make the case that some of them have oppressive or coercive power, depending on how they utilize it. 
And I think that's really the big distinction for anybody who steps into that work and has to interact with that material, right? So you step in and you do have some foundational elements. The question is, what are you going to do with it? And and for me, I would say that most folks that have stepped into the work um, embrace the community-coordinated response. They embrace the uh, the need for a program or a group dynamic. They embrace the need for accountability and responsibility. Um, but I don't think they embrace the uh, philosophy, excuse me, with as much um, zeal as they do the the rest of the the program because they themselves represent agencies in power. And um, I think for any of us who are believers, uh, we probably have a very different approach as well. I remember having this discussion uh, early on in my training. Um, I was, my initial training in some of this material happened in a police academy. Again, to me, (laughs) I was uncomfortable as a believer receiving training in a police academy, having, you know, a little bit more of a peace mentality and, and not really knowing the dynamics between my role between the, the church and the state, you know, having that wrestling match in my own heart. Um, and yet I look around and the majority of my classmates are police officers and corrections officers and probation officers. And yeah, the first hour they talked about, you know, oppression theory. And to think that anyone in that room currently in a position of power was whole hog embracing oppression theory would, would have been comical to me at that point because it was funny to watch um, and uncomfortable for everybody thinking through what in the world are we talking about? Um, and for a Christian, I think there's a level of discomfort as well. So I'm not denying that at all. I actually think that's part of the discussion that we get to have because we are people under authority and we are people to varying degrees given authority, and we are people who are called to use power in love, uh, we actually have terminology that is distinct in many ways from the world um, and from this cultural understanding of power, the idea of being stewards. You know, the, the concept of holding dominion without dominating is a foreign concept to, to, to many people in the world, understandably so. I mean, it, because you have heard that you know, the idea of power corrupts. And so there is great temptations for individuals who have levels of authority. I don't think any of us would deny that either. Uh, The question becomes is, you know, does that authority therefore make them oppressive? And I think most of us would say, well, of course not. The proof is in the pudding and the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And and so anytime, and this is this is kind of where I want to address the question, because I think the questioner is I think the question is sincere, certainly sincere, but I think the question is also has the the possibility of falling into this trap of black and white of either or, you know, the the all or nothing type of thinking that any of us, Christian or non-Christian, can get swallowed up into uh, without thoughtful discussion. I'll use an example from a, a secular environment that may be helpful, you know, I've told the story and um, we'll tell it again that I was speaking at a secular event, a pretty significant, large event, on, uh, and we were discussing the integration of faith and, um, and forms of correction and accountability. And uh, even though there were many faith leaders there, I was the kind of the token conservative evangelical, to, to be so blunt, 
I was the more conservative um, of the panel members. I was one of a handful of Christians uh, and perhaps the only evangelical. I, I for sure was the only conservative evangelical and would definitely be the only one on the panel that would still call themselves a complementarian. And just the use of that term brought a great deal of ire and, and frustration with the crowd and questioners who could not comprehend why I would call myself a complementarian considering, right, this is the assumption, how evil complementarians were and how that complementarity is really a contributor to abuse. Now, when I did my presentation and we talked through the dynamics of abuse and headship and submission and power and Jesus, uh, I had far less concern. Most folks were like, well, that's very similar to what I believe. Well, of course, because we took time to have a discussion. We didn't just label each other and start throwing bombs, right? But that is kind of the way that many people inside the church and outside the church operate. So there is an all or nothing thinking in this work, I think, that limits us or perhaps distracts us. It certainly delays our work. If we if we can't work together because we have to spend hours writing position papers on a nuance that doesn't affect a victim, yay or nay, right? Victims are suffering and perpetrators require accountability and the church is struggling and we have to spend hours, you know, parsing a, a sentence to make sure that, that we fall on the correct side of a line. I find that more problematic than helpful. I'm not saying that those are not helpful. I think those should be done, but not to the extent or to the detriment of helping and caring for others. And I think if we get into an all or nothing thinking, right? And, and here's, here's how I would unpack that. You know, what do I mean by all or nothing thinking? So do I believe, and do most people in the work, uh, working with domestic abuse victims, believe that power uh, is a significant part of abuse? Yes, I, I think the majority of us would say that in order for abuse to, to take place, there has to be some form of power or advantage or authority that's being abused. Otherwise, it, it doesn't fall into the category of abuse. It may fall in the category of harm or violence, um, but really that presence of authority restricts agency. Um, it increases your susceptibility to manipulation. Um it's it certainly runs more risks and has more impact. And so for many of us, we we tie power and abuse together. Does that mean that we believe that all power is abusive? Of course not. But when we fall into an all or nothing thinking, right? So if like some of my secular friends, I say all power is abusive. I've gone too far. I can't really help anyone because I'm addressing the wrong problem. Now, instead of addressing abuses of power, I'm just addressing power, right? Now I'm just saying, oh, you can't be a pastor because that's got authority and authority is abusive. You can't be a husband because there might be authority and authority is abusive. You can't be a man because men tend to have power and that's abusive. You can't be um, of a certain ethnicity because power and abuse, right? So then I just keep going down the line and I'm attacking uh, advantages, not people who misuse those advantages. And it's kind of like a friend of mine said, he said, if everyone is an abuser, right, then no one is an abuser. We cannot address everyone. We have to address individuals. Abuse cannot be addressed um, 
with everyone. It needs to be addressed with individuals who are abusive. And I, and I think he's on to something. So I can't go that far. And I think some have, right? Now, the other side is, is to say that power can't be confronted, right? Or that, that power must be authority, I should say. Authority must be obeyed or authority must be surrendered to or our primary response to authority is submission. Well, there are limits to authority. There are uh, caveats to authority. There are biblical responses to authority. And so there's got to be a balance. And so we, we really want to stay away from the extremes that all power is abusive. Certainly not. But abuses of power are prevalent, right? And then to anyone who acknowledges power, anyone who acknowledges authority as, a, as problematic is not saying that that is the problem. So we've got to balance what we do and understand that, yes, for those of us that are in the work, the vast majority of us that have the case experience and um, have worked through the process with folks, have worked alongside churches, have witnessed abuse or even suffered abuse, the vast majority of us say that, yes, power is a significant player, authority, position, advantage. Those are significant to the work. Um, otherwise, you're mutualizing if abuse is simply a list of behaviors. So a father who backhands his child, um, who locks her in her room, um, is abusive, who restricts and withholds food from her, who locks her outside in the house in the rain. We could call that abusive. He's abusing his role as a father. A child who quickly runs into the house and locks the door behind them and their father is stranded outside is probably not abusive. You see where I'm going with this? So we do have to understand the capacities of power with, without holding everyone in power accountable for abuse, while at the same time recognizing that that's where abuse happens is when someone abuses their power to harm another. So really escaping the all or nothing, I think, is going to be helpful here. So do I deny that most modern responses to domestic violence are built on a foundation of critical theory? No, not necessarily. I would say philosophically that's correct. I'd say practically it's hard to prove. To be quite honest, um, I've seen law enforcement in action, and um, it is very difficult to say that they are arresting a person on a charge of domestic while at the same time saying to themselves, I am the oppressor. That doesn't really happen. There's definitely a practical disconnect there. Um, but do I deny that that's the foundation philosophically? Absolutely not. Many people hold to that, and I think um, many folks in that camp have gone too far, all or nothing. Um, to reject that outright and reject any notion of power being abusive takes us to the other extreme, and I want to guard against that as well because uh, we do acknowledge that abuse is happening. The pastors are abusing their parishioners precisely because you know, they have power, that Nursery workers have abused children because they've been trusted. Like that is a huge contributor um, to that uh, wickedness. And the answer is not to eliminate all power or all authority. It is to hold people accountable um, who are in authority, to limit that authority in many ways, to follow the scriptural understanding of delegated or constituted authority, um, and to hold Jesus as the ultimate authority. Uh, that would seem to be a reasonable measured response. So I appreciate the question. I do not deny that many um, attempts to address domestic abuse in a modern context have a foundational element of critical theory. I do not think it is practically applied 
um, as as wide as we think, um, in large part because I think there is some confusion to the concepts of power being an aspect of abuse versus power being abuse. And understanding that most of us are not saying that power in and of itself is abusive. We are saying the abuse of power is the problem, that authority does require accountability and authority does present a a layer of temptations uh, that must be addressed and that the Bible gives us answers uh, to delegated or constituted authority that should be holding each other accountable uh, to the Word of God and taking seriously um, the accusations and the harm that can be done by people in positions of power. Well, I hope that was helpful. I, I know it's a little bit all over the place, but we do appreciate the question and want to uh, do well with discussions about power. Uh, want to be as nuanced and uh, as careful as we possibly can, while at the same time uh, not getting bogged down in the conversation and continuing the work. So my hope and prayer is that uh, you will continue to serve well in your local context, in your church, that if you uh, are a pastor, will uh, steward that um, that responsibility well. If you're a husband, you'll steward that responsibility well, uh, and that we will continue to hold high uh, the standards set forth by Jesus, who is our ultimate authority. Thank you guys for listening to the PeaceWorks podcast. Until next time, God bless.